Episode 1, an introduction. This podcast focuses upon a single event in the life and career of Bob Dylan, and he's backing musicians in what soon became The Band, where neither they nor anyone else had any notion of what would happen next. On the 28th of January 1968, Dylan and the Hawks that were, the band-to-be, played a three-song, 13-minute set at the matinee and the evening shows staged in tribute to the recently deceased Woody Guthrie. Scarcely anyone who heard them in New York's Carnegie Hall perform one of those songs at the Guthrie Benefit Concerts, Dear Mrs Roosevelt, knew of its existence. This was, and is, a uniquely anonymous composition, rarely performed at the time of its inception and resurrected by Bob Dylan for one day only. The 11 episodes that follow are all about that song, a song wreathed in mystery for over half a century. Such intensive treatment of one obscure piece of music may seem way over the top, but the history surrounding Dear Mrs Roosevelt tells us much about American progressive and radical politics in the middle decades of the past century. It tells us much about Woody Guthrie and the likes of Pete Seeger and folklorist Alan Lomax. But it also tells us much about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. Above all, it tells us a great deal about Bob Dylan at a critical moment in his crowded life. Over half a century later, no Dylan set has included Dear Mrs Roosevelt. Hundreds of shows, embracing hundreds of songs... And yet Guthrie's lament for President Roosevelt has never been sung again. For decades, most Americans knew only a sanitised version of This Land is Your Land. Today, the one Guthrie song lodged firmly in the national psyche is invariably sung in its entirety. Dear Mrs Roosevelt is more politically sensitive, which no doubt helps explain its anonymity. Although Guthrie's complete lyrics had appeared in print and today are available on his archives website, In 1968, the song was resurrected only in its censored form. Dylan dropped those verses he deemed politically embarrassing. Knowing only Dylan and his sidemen's censored version, it was the shorter song which a handful of minor artists later made their own. This is Bob Dylan's least known performance and Woody Guthrie's most obscure composition. It's also the last complete song that he wrote. The focus is naturally upon Bob Dylan, but let's pause for a moment to consider his sidemen, central to this story. Fifty years ago, the band's cultural significance in helping remould rock and roll at a moment of huge political, economic and social disruption was striking. Even if, for all but the aficionado, this profound influence was soon forgotten. Timeless in its portrayal of an America fading fast in the collective memory, the group's eponymous second album, The Band, left a legacy. For Richard Thompson, the album confirmed its creators as pioneers of the counter-counter-culture. Yet, for all the inflated claims of guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson, not least in testimony his 2016 memoirs, there's nothing to suggest he and his fellow musicians set out to do anything other than write and record songs rooted south of the Mason-Dixon line across a 70-year timeline from the Civil War to the Depression. There was no overarching vision. 
Our canson drummer Levon Helm simply gave his Canadian bandmates a set of myths on which to work their magic. How their peers, especially in Britain, might respond to the band's first two albums was no part of the equation, other than a simple desire for due recognition of densely textured, well-crafted songs played impeccably by masters of their trade. It was critic Grail Marcus, who as early as 1975 portrayed the band as timeless music makers, lodged deep in the very idea of America, complicated, dangerous and alive. Over 30 years after Marcus's best-known book, Mystery Train, hailed the group's unique contribution to young, white Americans' re-engagement with their country, he still saw their initial ability to lose themselves in the anonymity of their art, in music that seemed to predate them and was sure to outlast them, seeing this as a sign of greatness, however transient. Yet, like Neil Young in the early 70s turning his back on popular acclaim, the five members of the band recorded their first and even their second album with no clear idea of what would happen next. It's an elementary point with regard to contingency, but it needs repeating time and again. There may be a considerable degree of probability regarding future outcomes, but there could be no certainty. As a Nobel laureate once so famously said, something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr Jones? In a long-forgotten TV interview promoting the execrable 1987 film Hearts of Fire, Bob Dylan mused upon the unplanned and the unanticipated. Cynics will say nothing about Dylan's career as unplanned, but playing the part of a fading rock star at a time when you're creatively bankrupt is scarcely a calculated move. Late in his musings on reflexivity, Dylan unconsciously applied Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to himself. He had no direct knowledge of reality because other people's behaviour was unconsciously affected by his presence. He could only try and comprehend his immediate environment by forever standing outside and staring through the window. Back in March 1966, he'd said something similar to the composer David Amram when they arrived for a party at a Greenwich Village townhouse. We walked in there and sure enough, everything changed. Dylan's immersion in domesticity and small-town life after his motorcycle accident in July 1966 was a short-lived attempt to see the world as it really is without Bob Dylan subverting the actuality. In such circumstances, so many decisions with regard to the future were short-term and pragmatic. There was no grand plan. Never was this truer than at the start of 1968, when neither Bob Dylan, nor his backing band, nor anyone else had any notion of what would happen next. Equally, few at the time had a clear idea of what these six men had been up to in upstate New York across the previous 18 months. The mythology surrounding the basement tapes had yet to gain traction. The proceeds of the two concerts held at Carnegie Hall on the 20th of January 1968 were donated to the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, a hereditary condition which Woody had died of four months before. His mind and body shredded by a ferocious neurodegenerative genetic disorder, Guthrie was largely confined to hospital for the last 15 years of his life. 
Highlights of the two shows appeared on an early 70s album released by Columbia CBS, a tribute to Woody Guthrie Part 1. The best of a second, technically a third, benefit concert, staged at the Hollywood Bowl on the 12th of September 1970, was showcased on a tribute to Woody Guthrie Part 2, a simultaneous release from Warner Brothers, a truly rare occasion on which competing labels agreed to collaborate. Both albums were united on ever more comprehensive cassettes and CDs, culminating in a 2017 box set. Accompanying the complimentary LPs released in 1972 was a lavishly illustrated volume, a tribute to Woody Guthrie, containing the music and complete lyrics for all 23 tracks, including a full version of Dear Mrs Roosevelt and a linking narrative in Guthrie's own words. A tribute to Woody Guthrie fulfilled a dual purpose of raising money for a number of good causes, from medical research to funding a scholarship, and of consolidating the Guthrie family's copyright claims. Ludlow Music, a subsidiary of New York's Richmond organisation, already published This Land is Your Land, and since the 1950s had secured a succession of best-selling folk songs by artists such as The Weavers. It made commercial sense for a major music publisher like TRO to support Guthrie's widow Marjorie in publishing what today we would label a coffee table book. A tribute to Woody Guthrie was edited by Millard Lampel. Prominent on the New York literary scene, Lampel contributed a pen portrait and an overview of Woody Guthrie's songs as seen in the context of the Depression. Lampel eulogised Franklin Delano Roosevelt as essentially a man of the left, a people's president who died too soon. In reality, FDR promoted progressive policies only when he deemed them pragmatic and desirable. He was never a radical, even if many of those appointed to direct and implement New Deal initiatives clearly were. Lampel's nostalgia was a de facto rewrite of history, masking the belief of communist sympathisers in the 30s and early 40s that Roosevelt was at best a bourgeois reformist. This is an issue we will need to return to in a later podcast. It's worth at this early stage establishing who Millard Lampel was, not least because he embodied the radical East Coast intelligentsia which enthusiastically embraced folk music in the 1930s and which features so prominently in our story. Radicalised in New Jersey during the Depression, Lampel was a respected film and TV screenwriter who, like Pete Seeger, had been blacklisted in the 1950s for alleged un-American activities. As we'll see in a later episode, for two years at the start of the 1940s, he'd sung in the Almanac Singers with Seeger and another veteran lefty, Lee Hayes. These three were joined by Woody Guthrie and a variety of lesser luminaries on the fellow travelling folk scene. Lampel had co-written Union Made with Guthrie before creating the libretto for The Lonesome Train, Earl Robinson's wartime cantata on the death of Abraham Lincoln. Robinson also features later in the story. He was a communist composer much admired by Eleanor Roosevelt. Blacklisted in the 50s like Lampel, Robinson fueled McCarthyite indignation with labour anthems like Joe Hill, famous courtesy of Paul Robeson and Joan Byers. Earl Robinson shared top billing with Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes at a benefit concert for the Guthrie family in March 1956, an event marked by Pete Seeger's surprise announcement that a frail Woody had delayed entering hospital to come along and show his thanks. Millard Lampel wrote a script for the show using Guthrie's own words. 
Later that year, Will Gear relied on Lampo's libretto when reading extracts from Bound for Glory, Guthrie's Dust Bowl memoir, on a 1956 Folkways album of the same name. Written in an oaky vernacular and published in 1943, Bound for Glory was compulsory reading for any left-leaning folky from Greenwich Village to Berkeley. Lampo's 1956 script formed the basis of his concert commentaries in 1968 and in 1970, as well as the 1968 Newport Folk Festival's tribute to its fallen hero. If Arlo Guthrie had had his way, there would have been no script in New York. He felt it undermined the spontaneity of the occasion, but his mother insisted on offering a narrative to anyone in the audience unfamiliar with Woody's life and times. Let's go back to the LP released in 1972. Staring out from the front cover of the Carnegie Hall album's monochrome gatefold sleeve is the face of Woody Guthrie. As a backdrop to the concert's all-star cast together on stage for their climactic rendering of This Land Is Your Land. Listening to that record, it's Odetta and a pre-Woodstock Richie Havens who inject into the proceeding gravity, engagement, solemnity and the voice of the African-American. Woody Guthrie, class warrior and ornery bastard, would have approved. Even more so had Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee sung as advertised. The sobriety of the two black singers contrasts with the cheeriness of Tom Paxton and Judy Collins, their performances illustrating the ease with which a sanitised Guthrie was assimilated into mainstream American folk. Predictably, Pete Seeger reminded the audience of Guthrie's alter ego as the purveyor of saccharine children's songs. This initial release was a small selection of the songs performed at successive concerts, and the same was true of Millard Lampel's libretto, read by Will Gear and Robert Ryan. As well as Lampel, we'll hear more about Gear and Ryan in the next couple of episodes. Unsurprisingly, Arlo Guthrie enjoys pride of place on the LP. Always his father's son, in January 1968, he was the unlikeliest of high-profile celebrities. With this gently subversive title track on the playlist of America's hippest DJs, the recently released Alice's Restaurant was riding high in the record charts. Guthrie sings three songs on the tribute album, including his Uncle Jack's 1946 surprise bestseller, Oklahoma Hills. There's a pleasing authenticity about Arlo Guthrie's contribution, and you feel Woody would have cheered him on. More recently, Arlo Guthrie has acknowledged how overawed he was by the occasion, not least the scary venue and the array of artists. Carnegie Hall saw an older generation still in control backstage. The same was true out front, with an audience visibly older than the average rock and roll audience, and which dressed accordingly. Judging by the official photographs taken at a Carnegie Hall, most men wore ties, and most women eschewed the prevailing hippie chic. For Arlo Guthrie, by the time of the second benefit of the Hollywood Bowl in September 1970, the baton had been passed. Pete Seeger might bemoan the presence of a house band led by Ry Kuda, but he had to put up with it. New York was a concert, but LA was a gig. The original LP only hinted at what it was like to be in the main auditorium of Carnegie Hall on the 20th of January 1968. And with a mono recording taped off the house sound system, reproduction was poor. If the aforementioned selection of songs had been the sole content of the album, then hearing it for the first time would be a huge disappointment. Where's the excitement? Where's the passion? 
Why does the applause sound so laboured and polite? But there are, of course, three other songs. And even if they are perversely scattered across both sides of the record, it's clear which set, both afternoon and evening, had seen the audience come alive. As we'll see later on, Bob Dylan and his sidemen were suitably respectful, while at the same time putting on a show the state of devotees of Woody Guthrie would find hard to label folk. To put it simply, Dylan and the Crackers, as the former Hawks christened themselves for the day, rocked. For all the spontaneity of the occasion, they were tight and well drilled and they put on a show. Anyone familiar with the basement tapes can see how I Ain't Got No Home and the Grand Coulee Dam came straight out of the West Saugatee sessions the year before. Dylan sat in big pink singing countless covers and long forgotten ballads and when he and the Hawks revisited the Guthrie catalogue then this was surely how it sounded. Hearing Robbie Robertson's highly distinctive guitar breaks your first thought is hey this can only be the band but of course no one on the 20th of January 1968 would have said that as nobody in the audience could anticipate the musicians on stage going on to forge a fresh identity and a unique sound. I Ain't Got No Home and the Grand Coulee Dam were two of Woody Guthrie's best-known songs, but Dear Mrs Roosevelt was new to almost everybody in the audience. Release of the 1972 album and its companion selection from the 1970 benefit coincided with the Guthrie family establishing a foundation in Woody's name. In 1996, Nora, Guthrie's daughter by his second marriage and Arlo's sister, became the driving force in creating an open-access, now fully digitalised archive of her father's papers. Nora Guthrie was, and is, hyperactive in promoting and organising projects and events related to Woody's work, whether musical, literary or graphic. In consequence, the 2012 centenary celebrations attracted worldwide attention and that momentum has been maintained ever since. One consequence was the complete archive moving from New York to Tulsa after a local trust bought the collection and established the Woody Guthrie Centre, a museum, library and concert hall located in the Brady Arts District of the city. In 2017, the Woody Guthrie Centre and the German record label Bear Family released a box set containing all performances recorded of the 1968 and 1972 benefit concerts, as well as a wealth of related documentary material. Yet, for all the abundance of information, scant mention was made of Dear Mrs Roosevelt, both the most obscure composition in the Woody Guthrie canon and the most obscure song in the Bob Dylan repertoire. Dear Mrs. Roosevelt is yet to reappear on any of the bootleg series anthologies periodically released by the Columbia CBS label and its parent company Sony. Sanctioned by Bob Dylan, these archival compilations, usually thematic and accompanied by a suitably scholarly commentary, embrace countless outtakes, obscurities and previously unknown compositions. Of the Carnegie Hall sets, only Grand Coulee Dam has been rescued from oblivion. It appeared on a 2001 Japanese compilation of 16 live performances from the previous 40 years and was, for Grail Marcus, the standout track. Dear Mrs Roosevelt is available as download or on CDs of the Guthrie Tribute concerts and streamed on Spotify, rendering it easy to access, but not as an individual Bob Dylan track or download. 
Needless to say, no recording exists from the late 1940s of Woody Guthrie singing the original pro-Soviet version. Every recording he ever made is now in the public domain. And however comprehensive the collection, dear Mrs Roosevelt is conspicuous by its absence. Today, thanks to forensic commentaries by the likes of Barney Hoskins and Grail Marcus, we have an encyclopedic knowledge of what took place at West Sogarties in 1967-68, with a box set offering a definitive record of music made in and around the basement of Woodstock's most famous rented accommodation, Big Pink. The 2014 box set of the Basement Tapes highlights how much we now know about Dylan and the band-to-be following his motorcycle accident in July 1966, but how little is known about their public appearances prior to the Isle of Wight Festival in August 1969. What the Basement Tapes in their entirety do confirm is that Dylan and his fellow music makers ignored Guthrie's panegyric to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 32nd President of the United States and unique in being elected four times to the office. Roosevelt died on the 12th of April 1945 at Warm Springs, his holiday home. FDR's funeral train, Robert Clara's 2010 account of the late President's last railroad journey, relies heavily on an unpublished memoir written by Henry Wallace, Roosevelt's second Vice President. As Commerce Secretary in FDR's final administration, Wallace was a witness to the White House swearing in of his successor as VP, Harry S. Truman, once news of the President's death reached Washington. No doubt reflecting upon what might have been, Wallace then joined Eleanor Roosevelt on the second half of her husband's final ride from Washington to upstate New York. Robert Clara retraced Roosevelt's last ride, north from Georgia to the nation's capital and then on to the family home at Hyde Park. With sombre crowds of mourners lining the route, the railroad catafalque made its way to Union Station and a brief lying-in state at the White House. The train then travelled from Washington to Philadelphia and on to New York City, from where it steamed up the Hudson Valley to the President's final resting place. This was the apparent context in which Woody Guthrie composed his fond farewell. But appearances can be deceptive, and as we'll see, the progressive platform of Henry Wallace helps explain why and when dear Mrs Roosevelt first saw the light of day. Dear Mrs Roosevelt is a song of immediate appeal and lasting significance, signalling as it does the distinctive sound of the band and Dylan's instinctive layering of rawness and profundity onto the simplest of melodies. This elegy to FDR has stood the test of time, yet by any objective standard it's not one of the great Bob Dylan songs. Nevertheless, this is a song which clearly boasts a history. At its simplest, it's a composition that is seemingly inspired by private first-class Guthrie hearing Roosevelt was dead. And yet, it immediately prompts Inquisition. How had Woody heard the news? When did he write the song? Where was it performed? And why is it so little known? A myriad of other questions follow. Above all, why had Bob Dylan and the band in waiting chosen to perform this forgotten lament for the passing of the president that wintry Saturday in late 60s New York? Had they even known about the song? And if not, then at what point did they become acquainted with it? Here was an exceptionally obscure composition, and notwithstanding its brief airing 51 years ago, this has remained the case until now. 
Subsequent episodes focus upon the context in which the last of several FDR-inspired songs was written and then explore how and why a sanitised version regained the light of day in Carnegie Hall two decades later. <laughs>